Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. A reading from Isaiah 61, 1-11. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord, and you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance, and so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. The word of the Lord. Jenna. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and guys over here with the holy halo, I did ask the tech department if they could fix that. And uh, Jesus is just going to smile on you a little bit more today. So <laughs> um, to be honest, we have had just a ton of tech stuff this morning. And the live stream wasn't working. So if you are joining us on live stream, welcome. It took a lot of work to get you here today. Uh, but can we just give it up for our tech team? We had like tech gremlins or something that came in today. And uh, they've just been awesome. The band, too, a uh, lot, of, lot of challenges, but we're here and we're worshiping Jesus together, uh, and that's exciting. 
Um, and we even have a holy halo. So <laughs> hopefully it's not too distracting for, for anyone. Um, you know, Waterstone is an incredibly generous church. And uh, the fact that I get to be a pastor here just makes me so incredibly grateful. Uh, I love being uh, on staff um, here. And one of the, the best things that we've had going, uh, in my opinion, over the last few years has been Wednesdays at Waterstone. Uh, we just wrapped up uh, Wednesdays at Waterstone uh, last week. And we were doing this Understanding the Bible course and, and a class called Overcome. If you were in either of those, could you just raise your hand? Who all was participating on Wednesday nights with us? Yeah, it was an awesome, awesome time. Uh, but it's not just the class that I love. There were cool things happening uh, on the periphery. So when I think of Wednesdays, I also think of like Kat, who's leading our kids through the same discipleship curriculum that adults are doing. And they had these awesome projects where they were like using Legos to build the creation story and different parts of scripture and diving deep. And, and just those light bulb moments that every teacher loves to have were taking place in our, our kids. Uh, or I also think about just some of the people I got to meet that I normally don't on a Sunday and got to eat pizza uh, with them and just connect in the community that's formed. Now, I also think of people like T, uh, our, one of our volunteers. I don't know if she's here today. There she is. Yeah, T. She's awesome. So T, if you don't know, she, she's had some health issues that have been keeping her down. And she shows up every single Wednesday night with a smile on her face and like so much love in her heart. And she, every time I see her, she's like, I would not miss this for the world. Because she, uh, she loves pouring into our kids. It's so awesome. <laughs> it's so awesome. Uh, and, and all of that happens uh, because of the generosity of Waterstone. So I'm just so grateful for this church that, that it's a church that creates space um, because of your generosity where we can dive deep uh, into things like scripture, where we can see students and kids being formed. And so I just want to say thank you uh, for that. And, uh, and also let you know that as we come to the end of the year, uh, it's always kind of the final push at Waterstone. We have about $500,000 to make up in our budget um, to, to make ends meet for the end of the year. We're only about 50,000 behind or so, so it's fairly normal that we have that bigger chunk at the end of the year. But if you're a regular attender here, if you are someone who's a, a part of our community or a member, we just encourage you to think about a, a sacrificial gift uh, to, to wrap up the year and to help us make um, budget this year. So we can continue doing this. And that's just stuff that's going on inside the church. We have Operation Christmas Child and we've got Thanksgiving meals going on this week. All of that is made possible by your generosity. So thank you so much um, for that. And, uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray now and then we're going to dive into today's text. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today. And uh, as we come to the, the end of this series on Isaiah... Uh, God, and as we wrap up um, this, this beautiful, beautiful book, full of promise of how you were coming to reconcile all things and make things right, um, God, we've barely scratched the surface of the beauty of this text. Um, I pray today as we wrap up with these, these final words from Isaiah 61, God, I just ask that you would meet us in this space, uh, that those joining us online, those in this room, that, God, your Holy Spirit, uh, your manifest presence would be with us and that we could encounter you in a deep and meaningful way this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
All right, any U2 uh, fans in the room? Any, okay, yeah. Come, we're not a wooing church, so if you're wooing for something, you really like it. So you two, all right, let, let me just see a few hands. You two, okay, we got a, oh yeah, lots of you guys. Whoa, all right, awesome. Um, I'm not a fan of you two. So um, it's not that I like really actively dislike them. It's just they're not like, you know, they're not my band. Um, and to be honest, I'm a little scared even saying that out loud because one, a lot of you like it. But if you know Larry, uh, he is the greatest U2 fan in the world. And I don't mean like just the biggest, like the greatest. He loves U2. And at Waterstone, we agree to disagree on a lot of things. So like secondary theology issues or politics or Broncos, Cowboys, we can all get along. Um, but I don't know if it's okay to disagree and like not like you too. So if this is the last time you see me preaching, um, no, that's probably because I said something about you too that Larry didn't, uh, didn't like. And, and like I said, it's, it's not that I actively disliked them. They, they were just never really the band that I was drawn to and other bands were more meaningful for me. Um, and maybe it has something to do with like 2014 where they just like downloaded an album onto my iPhone without my permission. And like most people would be like, cool, free music. Not me. I was like, Bono, you just infringed on my freedom, my man. Like that's not okay. Um, or like maybe it's the fact that, uh, like, I, uh, man, I'm going to like maybe step on some toes. But uh, just the name and, and like kind of the caricature, like, like Bono and he's always wearing glasses. And like it's really hard for me to take someone seriously when they're like, hey, my name's The Edge. You know, like it's just, you're a grown man. Um, it's hard, it's hard. Um, and now that I've offended like half of the room, uh, I think Josh is about to like cut my mic, honestly. He loves you too. And he's like, you're done. Uh, I, 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 do, I do have a place for you too. In fact, uh, they, they've kind of come back into my life because my daughter Camden has started singing the song, um, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Uh, because she was introduced to that song on the like, uh, the musical jukebox comedy movie, Sing 2. Does anyone know that movie? Yeah, that's where she knows you two from. Uh, and so it's kind of come back into my life. And so she likes that song and where the streets have no name. And she sings it. And it's really cute. And so I'm like, okay, I can get behind this a little bit. Um, but also, this is like a really long introduction. I didn't even mean to go into all of this. But uh, also, uh, you two came back into my life because I was listening to a sermon recently by one of my favorite pastors. He's a guy named Tyler Stanton, and he's a, a pastor up in Portland. Uh, wrote one of my favorite books that I've ever read on prayer called Pray Like Monks, Live Like Fools. Um, also not a huge U2 fan, but he, for some reason, decided to read Bono's memoir. Any, anyone read Bono's memoir? It's like all the same people who said they were U2 fans. So it's all, all the same people. Uh, but he read the memoir, and as he was sharing in the sermon, there was a part of the book that kind of captivated him. And to be honest, it, it captivated me too. Because uh, Bono talks about how early in his life, uh, he had this view of the world where he looked at the world, and, and this is what he believed about the world. I can't change the world, but I can change the world inside of me. This was kind of his belief as a young man. He, he saw the suffering and the poverty and the hardship in the world, and he just thought, man, there's, there's, there's not a lot that I can do about what's going on out there, but, but I can do something about my internal world, and I can bring about change just within me. But, but he says somewhere along the way in midlife, that actually reversed. And the more he saw what was going on in the world and what was going on inside of him, it, it changed. And his belief was, I can change the world, 
but I can't change the world inside of me. And when I heard that, I was like, I think I might be becoming a fan of you too. Because that resonates with me deeply. The, 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 the idea that, that I can change the world. There are things that I can do in the world and I can see change take place. I can change the world. And to be honest with you, I've, I've seen the world change in some pretty incredible ways. I've seen some, some moments where God has shown up and change has taken place. And it's not this like random naivety. I, I know the world is messed up. I, I've seen some stuff. I've been in places. I've, I've spent time working with the addicted. I spent time living on a Lakota reservation where I saw some of the worst injustice and spiritual oppression that I've ever seen in my life. I spent years working with underprivileged youth in the inner city and seeing the challenges of kids who were basically never even given a shot at life. I know that saying the world can change is like almost something we could laugh at. And yet in all of those spaces, I saw God show up. I know what it looks like for the world to change and for, for little children to be set free from spiritual oppression. I know what it looks like to work with a teen mom and help her get her grades up and her SAT scores to a place where she can go to college and, and break the cycle of poverty that she's been in. And say what you will about feeding the hungry, but if you've ever been hangry, you know how much a warm meal can make a difference in your life. I've seen the world change in, in small ways and big ways. But it's really hard for me to see the world change within me. I can't seem to change the world within myself. I can't correct the thought patterns that I know I shouldn't have. There's this anger inside of me that I can't seem to get control of. The ways I see myself respond to stress in my life, the, the way that pain from my past still informs my present, the ways that I'm not the husband or father that I want to be. See, there are some days where I feel like I can't even get off the couch to live the life God has called me to live because there's another Netflix show that just rolls over. And it's mediocre and it's not that great, but it helps me escape the reality that I can't change what's going on inside of me. No matter how hard I try, I can't seem to fix the world within me. Whether you resonate with the first sentiment of not being able to change the world inside or, or you look at the world out there and you think, man, there's just so much. I, I don't even know how to bring about change. There, there's something that's happening in the end of Isaiah where he says there's something coming or rather someone who is coming to change the things that are going on within each and every one of us and still has the authority and power to change what we see going on in the world. See, Isaiah was living through a time where the people were living in exile. They've been waiting on the world to change. They've been waiting for someone to show up and to make all things right, to set the captives free, to bring them home. They've been waiting and anticipating a day where someone would come and change not just their circumstances, but, but very, the very fibers of their being and their soul. Someone that could make all things new. And Isaiah says in chapter 61 that that person 
is coming. That, that God is sending someone to change the world inside of each and every one of us and to change the world around us. And so today I want to take a little bit of time and look at what Isaiah says about what happens when, when God gets hold of us and he can bring change to our lives and then what that propels us to do. And so we're going to start out with Isaiah 61 verse 1. And right off the bat, and we need to, to understand there's an important thing happening in this line. The, the person who's talking that says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. This is the Messiah speaking. This whole song is a song about the Messiah and what he is saying he will come to do to the world. And this Messiah, he has the spirit of God upon him. God has empowered him by his spirit to do the work that he has been sent to do. And not only that, but the Lord has anointed him. He has been anointed by God. It's this priestly imagery of when Aaron would be anointed to lead the people to serve as a bridge between heaven and earth so the people could encounter God. This Messiah is coming empowered by the Spirit, sent by God, anointed for the task God has given him to do. And the structure in the beginning of this passage is really important because there's seven verbs. And Isaiah says that this person has come to like proclaim good news and to free the captives and to release and to bestow and to gift. And in the middle of those seven verses, there's a, there's a central verb that's the most important thing that this Messiah has come to do. And it's found in verse 2. This Messiah has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, the, the central task of this Messiah that God is sending is to bring about the year of the Lord's favor, which is a reference to something that was supposed to happen every 50 years in Israel. It's a, it's a reference to Leviticus 25. Anyone read Leviticus 25 recently? No, we never read Leviticus. Like, it's the book that we all skip over in our yearly reading plans, right? We get bogged down and we're like, I don't know what to do with this. But there's this really important part in Leviticus 25 where God says that every 50 years, he, he wants the people of Israel to have a year of jubilee, a, a year of freedom where all slaves within the nation are set free and, and where all debt, every single penny is forgiven. Everyone is freed and forgiven their debt. And then once everybody experiences this year of jubilee, it, it lasts for a year long. And everyone's given a year-long Sabbath of rest and, and a time where the land itself is given rest. And they enjoy the fellowship of everything being set right. It's this radical reset of the socioeconomic like, mindset of the entire nation. And if you think about the, the people of that time period, if you think about, say, someone who's just farming in the middle of Israel, he's just got a small farm, small family, and, and something happens to him. Let's say while he's out farming one day, he breaks his leg. And he can no longer tend his crops, and he can no longer feed his family. He can no longer sell his crops to take care of his family. And so he has really one option. He sells himself into servitude and sells his land to someone else. 
But in the ancient world, if you fell on hard times and you were trying to feed your family and you came to that place and you sold yourself into servitude, there was no way back to freedom. The, the debt was too great and there was no way you could earn your way out of that slavery and servitude. But not in Israel. God said that once in a lifetime, everyone would be able to reset to go back to the land that God had given them when they had conquered the nation of Canaan. That, that there would be this radical place where everything would be reset, all wrongs righted, all injustice righted, and all oppression reversed, and all debt would be forgiven. And, and this Messiah in Isaiah 61, he says that this is what he has come to do to bring about this radical reset, to, to reframe everything, to, to, to right all wrongs and to bring justice and restoration for all people. He goes on in verse 1 and, and says he's been anointed for this task and, and to proclaim good news to the poor. That's the same word we have for the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel, the good news of this day, of what will happen when the Messiah brings this about. And he says, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That, that when this Messiah shows up, it won't just be that debts are forgiven and that people are set free, but, but the very like parts of them that have been in grief and sorrow, that God is going to to bind them up and to bring healing to those spaces. To proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness the prisoners. It's this good news of this radical reset. And if you were an Israelite living in exile, waiting on the world to change, this sounds like exactly what you had been hoping for. God sending someone to make all sad things come untrue, to make all things right. But there's this interesting phrase that, that this, this Messiah is going to bring the day of the Lord's favor, and it's going to be good news, but it's also called a day of vengeance. Which if you're listening to what's happening, it sounds like good news, doesn't it? It sounds like freedom and, and it sounds like, uh, you know, the liberation from oppression and the, the forgiveness of debt. These are all good things. Why is this a day of vengeance? Well, because if you are the, the oppressors, or if you are the people who have benefited from the unjust systems of this world, if you are the people who have, have taken advantage of others, if you are the people who have acquired more power and more land and more wealth because of the misfortune of other people, then it, it doesn't sound like restoration. It sounds like vengeance. It doesn't sound like restitution. It sounds like redistribution. And so while this is good news, there are some that the Messiah recognizes will not receive this as good news because they like things the way they are. That they want the status quo to stay in place. Is it making anyone uncomfortable yet? Like, where are you going with this, man? Like, it sounds like you're getting really political. Like, are we supposed to start voting for, like, the forgiveness of, like, debt for college kids and stuff? Like, what is going on here? See, it should make us uncomfortable because it's, it's meant to tip 
the, the scales in the favor of those who have been mistreated. It's meant to work in the favor of those who have lost and need freedom. And God is saying, when I come, when I send my, my Messiah, all those wrongs will be righted. And for some, that's good news. And for others, that's going to make them uncomfortable. But that's going to be a source of frustration. It should make us uncomfortable. What's fascinating to me about this passage, though, is that, that, that Isaiah is saying this Messiah will come to bring this day of the Lord. And, and where Isaiah leaves off, Jesus picks up and begins his ministry. Some of the, the phrases in this passage may have sounded familiar to you because in Luke chapter 4, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus begins his ministry by going to his hometown. And Luke tells us that he was anointed and empowered by the Spirit. And he went to the synagogue, and they handed him a scroll to read, and it was the prophet of Isaiah. And unrolling it, Jesus searched for this passage. He, he looked for Isaiah 61, and then he read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus shows up on the scene. He looks for this passage. He reads it in the synagogue. And then he sits down and he says, this is being fulfilled in me. I am the one that Isaiah promised. And I have come to liberate the captives. I have come to set you free from the bondage to darkness and to sin. I have come to right all wrongs. See, Jesus grounds his very ministry. Everything that he is about, everything that he's about to do in the Gospel of Luke is grounded in this passage from Isaiah where Jesus says, I am the one who is promised. I have come to change the world. See, I can't change me. But what Jesus is saying is that he can. The central message of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is those who are on the fringes, those who think they're too far gone for God's grace, those who think that they are beyond redemption, are the very people that Jesus came to save and to bring jubilee to. The, the very people who think they are outside the scope of God's redemption are the ones Jesus came to rescue. You see, the biblical stories that you and I, every single one of us, we all live in a type of exile. We all live in an exile where we are far from God. We all live in the spaces where we look within ourselves and we know that there are things within us things that we wish we could take back, things that we wish we had never done, the, the places within us that we long to change and cannot. The biblical story is that's true. But there is someone who has come to liberate you from exile. That someone has come to free us. So where are you living in exile? Where do you need a Messiah to come and set you free? 
My guess is that there are places within your life, places you are terrified will never be transformed or changed. That behavior you keep returning to time and time again and can't stop even though you want to. That past event that you seem like you are unable to outrun. Something that you've done that you think God's grace won't touch. Your obsession with what other people think of you. Or the constant pursuit of pleasure. Or the way that we can be prone to pride and pursuing power within our lives. Even though we know all of those things are not of Jesus. See, it's the the secrets that we hide from others. The places within us that we know that person will never be able to forgive us for. And that place within us that we can't seem to forgive ourselves. So the places we are powerless to change ourselves. The places that we have a complete inability to bring about change in our world. Jesus came to proclaim the good news to the captives that you can go free. That you can come home. You no longer have to live in darkness. So where do you need to be set free? See, the invitation of the Messiah and Jesus is that we can experience change and transformation and freedom from those places in our lives. And it happens through simply surrendering ourselves to him. But this freedom that Jesus offers, it's not just all he has come to do. Jesus didn't come simply to to liberate us from from spiritual oppression or from from the the death and sin that we find ourselves stuck in. He, He has a grander mission than that. He actually came to overturn the things in this world that are wrong. To, to, to set people free within this world, not just someday liberation, but now liberation. And the beauty of what happens in this passage is Jesus, he takes what Isaiah is talking about and he begins to live it out in his ministry. That, that this Messiah from Isaiah 61, he doesn't come just to liberate us, but then after he brings about the day of the Lord's favor, he actually begins to replicate himself in a people to carry out the mission of freedom with him, to, to be agents of change in the world. And so in verse 3, we read this about what this Messiah has come to do. He, he comes to comfort all who mourn. And provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the day of his splendor. You see, I said the structure of these passages are three verbs and then the verbs for the day of the Lord and then three more verbs. The first three verbs are all about freeing and liberating everyone. And the last three verbs are all about bestowing and giving these gifts, these garments, these crowns. And instead of of mourning, it turns to joy. Instead of sorrow, it turns to praise. And what Jesus is doing, what the Messiah has come to do is create in you and me an image of himself that bears his image and carries out his priestly duties. If Jesus was the Messiah that that served as a bridge between heaven and earth, 
then he is creating for himself a people who will be a bridge between heaven and earth too. See, there's all sorts of imagery in this part of the passage that, that we kind of just glance over. It's like, oh, cool, they get like these cool crowns with jewels and they get a garment of praise. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds like pretty cool. And what Jesus is actually doing, what the Messiah in this passage is doing is, is he's giving these people the, the garments of a priest. You see, the priests, they were given this turban that, that was symbolic of the fact that they represented God to the people, that they belonged to God, that the, this horizontal, or sorry, vertical relationship between God and the priests, that they served as a bridge between God and others. And the, the garments that they would wear, they, they had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. And they had all of these different stones and jewels that represented that the priests served as representatives for the people. But, but it was contained to this very specific group within the nation of Israel. And what this Messiah is doing is saying that all of his people are being made into a kingdom of priests, a people who will serve as a bridge between God and the world. He goes on to say this about what this bridge will look like in verse 4 through 6. He says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks and foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. And you will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. See, what's happening in this passage is this people who have been in exile, this people who have been at the bottom of every socioeconomic run are suddenly elevated to the level of priest. And then what it looks like is all the other nations in the world are serving them. And so you have to ask the question, is it that like this kingdom of priests is elevated to the space where they become the oppressors and now everyone else is serving them and they get to put their foot on Babylon and Persia and Rome and all these places that have oppressed and harmed them. And instead, it's even better than that. Because you see, in the ancient world, priests, the way that they received payment, the way that they received sustenance, the way they were able to take care of themselves was from the abundance of the nation. And so the priests of, of Israel, they would receive payment for being priests by the, the sacrifices of the nation. And they would each get a portion of the sacrifices that were brought to the synagogues or to the temples. And what Isaiah is saying is, is this messianic movement it is so expansive that all of the nations of the world will come and bring sacrifices to Yahweh. And that the people of God will serve as heavenly representatives to the nations about what God is doing in the world and the liberating change that he has come to bring to the world. That they will be agents who, who rebuild and renew and restore the places of this world that have been broken and devastated by sin. That they will join this Messiah on this kingdom movement as priests, as, as agents of change in the world. And this is where this passage just like, because what we see in Acts 2 
If you remember back when we went through this series on Acts, the disciples, they're sitting in this dark room. Jesus has been uh, crucified and resurrected and he's ascended. And he tells them to wait in Jerusalem because they will be anointed with the power of the Spirit for the work that Jesus has called them to. And then what happens is the Spirit descends and they begin to proclaim the good news to all the nations who are gathered in Israel. And they begin to hear in their own language the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done in the world. They, they, they begin to carry out this kingdom mission, this vision. And then do you remember how Acts 2 ends? It, it says that the people of God, the disciples and the apostles, that they gathered together and they devoted themselves to the teaching of Jesus. And so the proclamation of the good news, and, and then it gives this little line, there was no possessions among them. They shared everything that they had with one another, and there was no one who was hungry or destitute or poor, because they all shared with one another what everyone else needed. Sounds a little bit like Jubilee, doesn't it? You see, Jesus came to set the world free, but then the people that he has freed become the priests and his representatives, this bridge between heaven and earth, the people who bring about change in the world, who join him on this messianic movement of jubilee. But let's be honest. I mean, if we can't even bring change to ourselves, if we need someone to bring change to us, how can we even begin to bring change to the world? Let's be really honest. Tomorrow's Monday, right? Which means some of us have to get our kids up and ready for school and make sure that they have enough money for lunch or that they've packed a lunch. We're going to have an inbox that's full with a lot of things that we got to catch up on over the weekend. Our bosses are going to need stuff from us. The people we supervise are going to need things for us. Our houses need work. There's all sorts of tasks and lists and things that we have to do. How in the world do we go about joining Jesus on this movement to change the world when we're just mostly trying to make it through the world okay? Like, what does it even begin to look like? And where do we even start? Like, do we need to go to Israel and and get involved with what's going on over there or Ukraine? Or maybe we need to start with like child trafficking or is child, child hunger more important? Like, like where do we even begin to make a difference with the problems that are going on in the world? We can look at what's taking place out there and it can feel so overwhelming. Do we get involved in our, our kids' schools or do we, do we try to do a, maybe a prayer meeting at our, our work? Like what does it look like to join Jesus in these kingdom movements, to, to be messengers of jubilee and freedom? What does that look like on a day-to-day basis when we're just trying to make it through the monotony of life? See, I, I don't know that I have answers to any of those questions and if you do, I would love to hear them. What I've found for myself is this, that that most of the time, if I want to be a part of the change that needs to take place in the world, then I I simply need to follow Jesus where he goes. Because you see, when you look at Jesus' life and ministry, he, he always ends up going to the places where there are these people called the least. 
The, the people that most others would overlook, the people who are on the margins of society, the people who have nothing to offer the rest of the world, the people who are most desperately in need of jubilee. And in our context, it can be fairly easy to kind of insulate ourselves from that world. It takes a fair amount of effort to step out of our day-to-day routines to see people in those spaces, potentially. And so if we want to follow Jesus, then I think there's this expectation that we become proximate with those people who need the help and liberation that Jesus can offer. You see, proximity does something within our hearts. Because I could tell you a lot of statistics about child hunger around the world, and I could tell you about the, the dangers and, and the challenges of child trafficking, and I could tell you about, you know, all the different things that go into poverty, and I could list you statistics, and, and all of that might make you feel something. But man, if you go and you spend time with a family who, let's say, lives in the slums of Guatemala, and they live in a lean-to, and you spend a week with them, and you learn their names, and you learn about the, the family dynamics that they have going on, and you join them in their chores of trying to find clean water and food to eat, and you see their child go to bed hungry, and you know that child by name, and proximity begins to change something, doesn't it? Proximity is what moves us from, from just pity to, to action, It moves us into the places where God is at work in the world and he has called us to be agents of change too. You see, and the the thing about that is that that is how Jesus went about his messianic mission. Jesus didn't see us in our plight and in our captivity and in our struggle and just think, yeah, like I'll just write a check to take care of that. He paid with his blood. He became one of us and lived amongst us. He moved into the neighborhood and experienced the life that we experience every single day. And he knew what it was like to go hungry. He knew what it was like to grieve. He became proximate to us so that he could go about bringing the change that we need in the world. Moving to Guatemala for a week is probably without the reach of most of us. And so how do we just do this on a day-to-day basis? See, I I found that it it usually happens in small and subtle ways where where just a certain relationship with even one person who is maybe a a little less fortunate than I have been, a a person who maybe needs just a little bit more help than, than I do, and stepping into proximity with that person and building relationship with them. There's a woman uh, who, I don't know how to say this. I said it last night. I said, there's a woman in my life. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. Like that's, you know, when you say something out loud, and there's this, this person that does that for me in my life. She's about 70 years old and she lives alone and she doesn't have any family to take care of her. And, and I just know probably a tenth of her story. But from what I know, this woman has seen some stuff and been through some trauma. And most of her family has left her. And so really the only people that she has are the church. And and so when she falls and needs to go see a doctor, she calls the church. And when she needs to have surgery and someone watch her dog, she calls the church. 
And when she's having a, a challenges with the different mental health things that she goes through, she shows up at the church and she asks for prayer. And, and to be honest with you, my relationship with this, this friend, there are so many times where it can honestly feel like an inconvenience. Where, where I get the call and it it's always seems to be on the day where I have the most things on my to-do list, where I have the most things I'm running around trying to accomplish. And those are the days where she shows up and says, hey, I need something. What I have found in those moments, in this relationship and friendship, is that as much as I could stand up here and say, hey, look at me, I'm doing all this stuff for this person, is that it's actually the space where I am changed the most. That, that when this woman shows up and asks for prayer, and, and I spend 15 minutes hearing about her week and what's going on, and I pray for her, that, that it's the moment she has said, hey, you always pray for me. Could I take a moment to pray for you? And then she opens her mouth and prays. And I, I kid you not, it is the moments that I have felt closest to Jesus and most seen by him. See, there's something that happens when we move into proximity with the people that we think need us and, and that we think we can be the bridge between heaven and earth to them. It turns out that most often they're the ones who bring the spirit of jubilee to us. That they're the ones who begin to cause change that take place in our lives. And as we follow Jesus into those spaces, those are the areas that we begin to see change within ourselves. I still don't know how to change the world and I don't know how to change the world within me. But I do know every time I follow Jesus to those spaces, I begin to see a glimpse of the freedom that he is offering us. And something in my inner world begins to change too. Even as I follow Jesus into those spaces. So where might Jesus be calling you today? To not only experience his freedom and his liberation. Where might he be calling you to follow him into the places where people need him the most? Often it can happen within the monotony of our lives and our everyday living. It can look like shutting off your cell phone to spend time with your kids. It can look like looking the barista in the eye and asking them how their day is going and really listening. It can happen when you go grocery shopping for your family and you pick up an extra bag for the food pantry. See, there are those spaces where we can step into and, and we can see Jesus moving even in the smallest ways if we begin to look. So where is Jesus calling you this week? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, as we come to a close on this uh, beautiful beautiful book of Isaiah. God, we've barely scratched the surface of what it has for us, but I pray in some small way uh, you would be working in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds. The Holy Spirit, even now, you would be speaking to each and every one of us. That God, you would reveal to us the places within us that you are inviting us to freedom. You're saying we no longer have to live with that shame, that guilt. We no longer have to be prisoner to that darkness. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would bring that freedom and liberation to us because we cannot bring it ourselves.
And God, if there are spaces in the world that you've equipped or empowered us to meet the needs of those around us, I pray that we would be bold and take action. And that we would step into those spaces and that God, in those spaces, we might even see a deeper glimpse of the goodness of what you have brought to this world. God, we pray all of these things in the hope and the promise that's in Isaiah all the way to Revelation that one day you will come to set all things right and to make all things new. And we wait for that day. And as we wait, may you lead us to the spaces of renewal you have called us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.